Hey everyone, how's it going? It's Connor. You're listening to Money and Plants. This is episode 19. This is a business and health podcast where I get to speak to some really, really interesting people about some of the big ticket issues that affects your life and my life. On this episode, it's all about the housing market. What is going on in the housing market right now? I have been speaking to lots of different people over the last number of months, estate agents, property developers, banks, property people. And I suppose, as I've said before in the podcast, most people, most Irish people right across the island are obsessed with property. And I think in this episode, I get to speak to someone who knows what's going on. And we have a wonderful conversation. It's the one and only Mr. Jordan Buchanan. Jordan is the chief economist at the fantastic Property Pal. If you haven't been on the Property Pal website or portal, why not? It is a fascinating resource. And I mean, for someone like me, I'm on Property Pal often, so I would encourage you to have a look at that. But in this conversation coming up with Jordan, uh, Jordan already has been on this podcast twice, and this is his third appearance on the show. And we have another fascinating, fantastic, I think, conversation, which hopefully will add quite a bit of value to you and your family and maybe allow you to make some really important decisions over the coming months. I'm always asked, I'm always asked, what do you think is happening in the property market? I suppose for me, I always break it down. There are more than one property market. There's the housing market, then there's the commercial property market. Two totally different things and there's two totally different dynamics actually going on in both of those markets. That's something I speak to Jordan about. That conversation is coming up in a few minutes' time. Before we get stuck into the conversation I had with Jordan earlier this week, I want to share some of the things that I've been thinking about this week. This is my thought of the week, and I suppose. I'll keep this brief, but I have spoken on the podcast before about my concern and frustration with the politicians and local elected representatives. And I think what's come to the fore in the last two weeks in particular is the fact that the Northern Ireland executive, the government at Stormont, are really struggling to come to terms with dealing with the pandemic. And also the fact that their messaging to the general public continues to be lacklustre at best. I think the scenario we find ourselves in today, I'm recording this podcast midweek, is the restrictions were due to be lifted on Friday. And as we all know, and at the point of recording, Stormont has yet to tell the business community what the position is going to be. I think the challenge right now for Northern Ireland, Inc, Northern Ireland PLC, is regardless of how these people get on and regardless of how bad the personal relationships might be, I mean, you don't have to like someone to try and work with them. And I think politically it's very challenging for some of the politicians in Northern Ireland to work together. However, if you're going to put yourself forward to be a politician then you have to have some element of compromise 
and I think it is an all-party executive. There are five parties in the executive. And I think something that, in particular, the DUP seemed to have got caught out in this recent debacle, in that it's very obvious that they are keen that the economy opens up this week. However, all of the other parties are and have requested an extension of two weeks. And I mean, if I was advising the DUP, it looks again that they are the bad guys. You have local DUP representatives ringing into local radio shows. Uh, gunslinging is the only way to describe it, and I just don't think that's helpful. And I think from Northern Ireland's perspective, the last thing we need here right now, because things are really bad as it is, is an executive that collapses. And for all of us who live in Northern Ireland, we know that that is very possible. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there is an element of savviness and a little bit more politicians become a little bit more measured in terms of how they approach dealing with the pandemic and society in the next six months. Business owners, entrepreneurs, people who live in Northern Ireland, society, we need a functioning executive. We need a clear plan. We need more investment in the NHS. We need to increase capacity. It needs to be a lot more coherent and we need less of the bickering, fighting, arguing, because it looks really, really poor. It's now time to introduce my guest. He's not a new guest to Money and Plants, of course. As mentioned earlier, Jordan has been on the show twice before. But I did think it's now November, it's near the end of the year, and I haven't spoken to him in a few months. I thought it was really important that we all, each of us, caught up with where the property market is right now. Where is the housing market? What is going on in the housing market in Northern Ireland? Every estate agent you speak to today says they've never been busier. Really? Well, that's what they tell me anyway. And I used to be an estate agent, so I know these people don't tell lies. So. No better man to speak to you about all of this is the Chief Economist at the Property Pal portal, Jordan Buchanan. We have a wonderful conversation. We talk about all of these things, the level of transactions, the availability of mortgage products, the problem arising with non-performing loans, employment. We talk about government debt, all of those really important and so interesting topics. I spoke to Jordan earlier this week, a great conversation. I'd like to thank him. He was very, very generous with his time. Let's roll the tape. Jordan, good morning. You're really welcome. I think this is your third appearance on the show. How have you been keeping? Good morning, Connor. Yes, very well. Thank you. I, I can't complain. So hanging in there, still working from home, but approaching Christmas. So we'll, we'll see what the new year has in store for us all. Yeah, we just things are just completely uh, a bit crazy right now again. Um, we're, we're very much in, in the second wave globally, I suppose. Um, but one of the things that, you know, continues to confuse me is the, the sort of energy in the, not only the local housing market in Northern Ireland, but even globally, you know, I've been doing a bit of work in the last week, having a look at what's going on in the US, Canada, China, 
And the housing market pretty much is holding up, even though we've had to stop nearly twice on our economy. And I'm wondering from, you know, property policy perspective and a lot of the data and the good work you guys have been doing in there, you know, what's, what's been going on? What's, what's, the, what's your own sort of gut feeling on things right now? Yeah, it's it's almost paradoxical, isn't it, how, how the, the housing market's been performed? I mean, it's, it's very much a unique time where economies and the sort of the economic climate across the world is deteriorating. But as you say, housing markets across the world are all functioning exceptionally well. And there's a lot of different dynamics at play there as to, to why I think that's been playing out, which we're also going to talk about here today. But just as a sort of overview of this year in the, in the Northern Ireland housing market, what, what we've certainly seen is if we think back to around sort of the first time I was on your podcast, sort of already March time or so, um, uh, sorry, sorry, March, April time, the housing market was was effectively closed in Northern Ireland. I mean, the surveyors weren't able to go out and view properties. Uh, our land registry was operating at limited functions. So pretty much it was very difficult to get housing transaction completed. That That was kind of in place for about two months or so before it reopened in the middle of June. And since then, it's really kicked off. Now, looking at the official numbers, I mean, the year started pretty strongly. There were about sort of 6,000 or so transactions in Northern Ireland, which was about on par with what we saw uh, last year in 2019. In the second quarter of this year, transaction activity fell by about 67%, um, which was actually very close to what we forecast in Propofile. We kind of thought it was going to fall around 70%, so it was certainly on par with, with what we expected. But then the bit that I find particularly interesting is in the third quarter of this year, when we've seen lots of sales agreed and lots of activity in the market, the official transactions as registered through um, HMRC is still down around 53%. So there's lots of sales which have been agreed, but they haven't yet completed. And part of this is because there's just huge backlogs in the system of, of conveyancers and, and lenders and you know, requests for title searches and deeds and, and instructions and things like that. So the whole process has taken much longer to actually complete. And as we're, as we're well, well aware about as well, the stamp duty holiday, which was announced earlier in this year as, as kind of the market reopened, um, has been a boon um, for activity. Uh, and that's certainly seen as one of the factors why we've seen lots of this, this activity brought forward. And there's a lot of literature and, and research to understand the impact that the stamp duty has. And one of the arguments is that it just displaces activity. It brings it all forward. And you know, someone who's thinking about maybe moving next summer will we'll move it forward and try and do it just maybe six months before to avail the tax break. So we're certainly going through a period here at the minute where there's just so much activity feeding through and that, that the wider parts of the system are, are actually struggling to keep up with the demand. I think, I think it's, um, I've been keeping an eye on, you know, a lot of the commentary coming out of a lot of friends and as real estate agents and stuff. And an article mm-hmm. I was reading this week was, you know, one of, there's a number of reasons for the, demand and increased demand in purchasing and buying of thousands. What one was pent up demand, the stamp duty holiday. Behavioral change post lockdown was something that got my attention. And I'm I'm just wondering, were you seeing anything in the data to support that? Like what kind of houses are people buying or viewing, you know, online? Are are they are you looking more outside cities and towns and detached? And maybe maybe if we can get into the data a little bit, it would be really useful yeah yeah absolutely so well i mean the first the first kind of gauge we have of sentiment in the market is how many people are coming on the site and at the minute so well during sort of april may whenever we were in the the lock, first lockdown period overall activity in the site fell about 40 percent people people weren't interested in looking for looking for property they were they were dealing with the new reality of working from home and getting childcare arrangements and everything that came with it very quickly particularly in the early june 
the traffic levels soared. Uh, they were sitting around sort of 50% higher than we would normally expect that time of the year. And that has held up remarkably since then. There's been very little deviation in between sort of 30 to 50% more people on the site every single day. Uh, and that's, that's still true as of today. Now, subsequently, the, the next sort of layer we would look at is, right, well, how many people are inquiring for properties? Many people want to go out and see houses. Um, and generally speaking, the inquiry levels have remained equally as strong. Well, back in, back in June sort of time, it, it increased about 200%. That has gradually come down. It's softened a wee bit in line with the seasonal patterns and maybe just as people are actually uh, buying houses and moving on or whatever else they're doing. But it's still up around sort of 20, 30% compared to this time last year. So there's still a huge amount of appetite there to go out and buy property. In terms of where people are looking, as you said, whenever I look at how many properties we, we marked as sale agreed on the site in the third quarter of this year versus the third quarter of last year, it was up 32%. So again, it's feeding through that the people who, who actually are looking to buy houses are, are starting to feed through and actually commit to the purchase of those. But whenever we start to segment, okay, well, where are they buying houses and what type of houses are they getting? That's, that's when we can start to understand a bit more about the, the underlying dynamics. So the bit that I find particularly interesting is sales of four and five bedroom houses have increased by 51 and 52% respectively compared to this time last year. So there's a lot of bigger, more expensive houses are being sold, which suggests that wealthier demographics are the ones playing a key role in, in the housing market activity at the minute. Uh, and in terms of the sort of geographical breakdown, the top, uh, so if, if we stick with the sort of the official council boundaries for now, Belfast still remains the most popular area by houses and just by sheerly the size of it. Then you're into the sort of the Ards and North Town, Armagh, Banbridge, Craig Avon sort of areas. But whenever we look at the proportional change, so what, what have increased at, at a greater proportion compared to this time last year, Antrim and Newton Abbey's being the big winner, followed by Ards and North Down. So that sort of the areas, if you will, greater Belfast are sort of 10 to 15 minutes outside uh, the Belfast boundary where we've seen lots of activity feeding through. If, if I'm just looking here on the screen at the minute, and sort of the top 10 areas where properties have sold, um, sort of the Ards Peninsula, Newton Ards, East Bangor, uh, Ballyclare, Antrim areas been really popular. And then up in the north coast, the sort of your causeway areas in Port Rush, Port Stewart has been exceptionally popular as well. So there's maybe been a bit of an element where people sort of are adapting to the new new working routines, you know, the, the whole process of they need more space, they're maybe going to be working from home for longer, uh, they want to have a garden and things like that. And that's certainly what we're seeing thus far is, is some of the features which are feeding through. And is there like a, so that obviously if you're buying that kind of property, is there any kind of price dynamic there? Are we are we talking largely, is, has there been, my view would be there's been an increase, um, this is just anecdotal, my own personal view, there's been an increase in people buying houses between maybe, you know, 160 and 250,000. Is that, is, that, is that showing up in the data, like there's, there, it's more expensive properties are selling? Yeah, yeah, so that there is an element to that. I mean, we, we, Prices across the board do seem to be growing for houses. I'll, I'll talk about apartments in a wee second here because there's slightly different factors at play there. But houses right the way from sort of two, three, four, and five plus bed, they have all been growing in price, but some of that slightly higher market that we've seen have been coming through in sort of three and four beds in particular. As you get into the sort of the five bed, that's obviously your, your particularly more expensive houses. You maybe just got some more additional room for negotiation there between buyer and seller. Um, but generally speaking, as, uh, across the board, yeah, there's there's pretty strong growth in prices. Um, the other interesting bit, again, linking to, to apartments here, is when I look at year-to-date sales, um, so obviously with the market closed, sales over the whole year are down. But whenever we look at how the recovery has been since, since June period, 
year-to-date sale for houses is down around 10% compared to this time last year, but year-to-date sale for apartments is down around 18% compared to this time last year. So over the last sort of four or five months in particular, we've seen just lots of demand for houses, more so than apartments. And what we're starting to see feeding through on the site is, is lower prices for apartments uh, on the back of slightly lower demand levels coming through there. Right, okay. So, so the housing market, we're seeing a bit of a, an increase in, in pricing and, and, and good demand, but not so much for apartments then? Yes, yes, exactly. That's, that's kind of what we're starting to see feeding through at the minute. I mean, overall houses, uh, if we take all houses advertised on the site as an aggregate, prices are up around 2% compared to this time last year. Whereas apartments, they're down around 2% or so compared to this time last year. But year on year, house sales in terms of transactions are down 10% to last year? Uh, yes, total, total sales agreed uh, to this point of the year compared to last year is down around 10% for houses. Um, and that, as I say, is a result of the market, which was closed for two months of the year. Um, since, since it kind of reopened, sales activity has been much quicker compared to this time last year. So it's making up for that lost ground in a sense. And, Certainly, I think by year end, it will continue to claw back some of that activity um, throughout the month of November. It's still fairly robust, to be fair, because it, you know, one, of the, one of the issues with selling a property, it can take three or four or five months sometimes to get a, a house in normal, a normal global environment completed. So to be down 10%, in my view, year on year on sales is, is impressive. Um, yes, exactly. Given, given the scenario we're in. I was fortunate enough to sit in on a Bank of England webinar earlier this week which was really interesting um, and some of the notes that I took down which I'll share in this podcast is that uh, the view of the Bank of England is that interest rates are to remain low certainly over the next number of years. Um, mortgage approvals actually have shot back up over the last few months across the UK. They are seeing a tightening of credit restrictions and uh, a more uh, I suppose stringent approach to you know credit scoring whenever they're, they're looking at, at mortgage approvals. Um, the number of advertised mortgages that today are less than a year ago. What, one of the things that I wanted to keep a track on and I wanted your thoughts on was the availability of mortgage products. Um, and you know, the Bank of England are basically saying that you know, there's still, you know, interest rates are gonna be low, um, but mortgage products are still available. Have you any data on that, on the recent sort of trends around mortgage availability and, and deposits and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. so that, that's been one of the big changes to the market over the last couple of months. So despite the, despite the resilience that we've seen in the housing market, lenders are taking a much more cautious view in, in line with the heightened risk of the economic climate. So typically in, in, in times of economic uncertainty, one of the things they'll start to do is pull back on their product offerings for lower deposit mortgages. So when we look at people who maybe only have a 5% or a 10% or even in the 15% deposit, they tend to view that as a bit more of a risky lending and, and fear that maybe house prices were to fall uh, in line with the economic uncertainty and those buyers could be pushed into negative equity. I mean, ultimately lenders have a responsibility for, for safe lending practices and they, they need to make sure that uh, they they land accordingly with with the climate. So what what we have found uh, very much so is a tightening of credit in line with what you just said there from from the Bank of England's research. Uh, and this is certainly a UK wide feature, but particularly in Northern Ireland. And um, even just before I get into sort of the, the mortgage products that are available, just to give you an, an understanding of uh, the typical segment of the mortgage market locally. Last year, for instance, which was a kind of normal functioning year for the property market. There were about sort of 17,000 or so new mortgage loans issued for house purchase, of which 11,000 of those were for first-time buyers. 
Now, if you look at that sort of 11,000 first-time buyers there, more than half of those people had less than a 15% deposit. So at the minute, in, in line with the changing economic uncertainty, lenders pretty much are not offering mortgage products unless you have that 15% deposit. So it's really meant that almost half of the, the first-time buyer market in Northern Ireland has, has been omitted from, from property activity. Uh, just because of the, the sheer nature of the credit system. And that represents a significant buyer to the market going forward and ultimately will only change when lenders change their risk stance and are willing to, to offer those loans again. There are, I think there are a couple of maybe 10% uh, deals available, but it's very few and far, uh, lots of stringent criteria uh, and uh, very difficult to access. So for all intents and purposes, unless you have a 15% deposit, you're, you're, you're going to struggle to get on the mortgage market at the minute. And that's part of the reason why we've seen a huge uptick in activity for the likes of co-ownership housing uh, and alternative uh, products to get on the housing market. So it's worth, it's worth going over that again. So nearly 60% of the mortgages that were approved last year um, were first-time buyers and they took advantage of the, they had had, did they have to have a 15% deposit last year? So last year you could have bought with a 5% five or 10%, you would have been able to get on the market. So essentially anyone who had kind of had 10 grand or so in savings as a house last year, was now based, the average first time buyer property is around 130 grand or so in Northern Ireland. It pretty much means you need to have around sort of 20,000 pounds, maybe more once you factor in legal costs and things like that mm -hmm. to actually buy a house. And a lot of people just, they simply don't have that money. They, they could even be in stable jobs and stable incomes. They just don't have that savings in place. Yeah. Uh, and that's where it becomes increasingly important for the likes of the bank and mum and dad or people who are in those fortunate positions to to be getting support from others if that's if that's the route they want to go yeah i see that as a, a major barrier to entry um if, if that if obviously it has changed and and we talked in the podcast before whereby the banks were even going some of the banks were going to the length whereby you can't use the mum the bank of mum and dad as your deposit you have to actually own the money yourself i mean that's just totally ludicrous is that still is anybody pushing that at the moment or 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 do you, are you I, I haven't heard. I haven't heard much about. I've heard about that several months ago. There was, as I say, that each lender has their own conditions of of their products, and you need to speak to them individually about that. But there was all sorts of caveats and, and clauses built into the these agreements which were in place. So you you just got to look at them and make sure you read the small print to understand whether or not you actually will be able to access the mortgage or not. But even linked to that, Connor. So that that's kind of one hand of the mortgage equation is whether or not you can get a mortgage in the first place based on, on the deals that are available. The next component of that is what's the interest rate on that on, on those mortgages? And again, particularly in the last sort of two to three months, we have seen lenders right across the UK and, and locally in Northern Ireland raising the rate of interest on those mortgage deals that are available. And um, so for instance, say say on a typical property purchase of £150,000 on a 30-year term. Back in sort of February this year, there you could have got a mortgage rate uh, for about 1.49%. Uh, that, sorry, that's with a 15% deposit. You could have got a rate of about 1.49%, which would have meant you would have been paying a mortgage of around sort of £440 a month. Now, with that 15% deposit, the interest rates have risen, risen sufficiently, whereby the lowest deal you'll get to around sort of 2.1%, which is going to mean a, a monthly outgoing of about £480. So just very quickly in a short space of time, even with a 15% deposit, you're going to be paying around 50 quid extra a month 
based on that sort of 150k property. And why why do you think the banks are doing that? Is that just a commercial decision to increase revenue? Yeah, it's it, it, it's very much a commercial decision. They're doing it across the board now. It's 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 a combination of increase in revenue because central bank interest rates are so low that they're not going to kind of get it from that. But it's also a, against their wider risk strategy. I mean, no lender at the minute with the pressure they're under, and I said with the, the level of demand that's coming through, none of them want to be top of you know the money facts. Uh, weekly table or what to say we have the most affordable deal because they just have so much demand for the services at the minute they, they typically would raise interest rates for mortgages whenever they want to soften their application levels uh, but this has been universal across the board I mean I could show you the charts and there's just a really obvious spike in the last sort of two three months where all lenders are just raising their interest rates on their mortgages well, well one of the one of the reasons I always try and look at things from the other person's point of view and one of the reasons that, that might be the cause of that is the fact that, as we've discussed on the, before in the podcast, the level of non-performing loans and the level of liabilities on these banks' balance sheets at the minute is completely off the scale. So, I mean, they're going to have to do something. They'll have to charge more money somewhere along the line. So maybe they're using the mortgage market as another way to skim some money um, on, on a positive way onto their balance sheets. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, what are lenders there for? You know, they're, they're there to lend and make money. And at the minute, with central bank interest rates at pretty much the lowest it's ever been in history, they're not particularly making a lot of money that way, so they'll need to figure out alternative ways to make money. So mortgage rates or mortgages are obviously a very big part of banks' uh, business models. So that's one area they'll look at in, in, in the short term. But then you'll maybe start to see, depending on obviously the rate of interest rates and quantitative easing and things like that, you'll maybe start to see other factors come into play, whether or not they, they will charge for accounts or or for additional cards or whatever it might be, you know, for the, the different services that the bank provides, they'll need to look for alternative means to, to keep their revenue growing against the back of potential losses that they, they're going to see coming through from non-performing loans in, in the months and years to come. Yeah, well, one of the things that I'm really concerned about, because I've been here before about 10 years ago, and I have the muscle memory of the last crash to, to, to figure out what's going on right now, is the absolute lack and dearth of construction finance. And actually, it came up in the Bank of England's um, webinar earlier this week, where there has been a lag across the board, the banking sector, and the availability of construction finance. And I know with my own business, our own funding business, I mean, the banks have just closed up shop um, collectively in terms of development finance. The odd builder developer might be getting some money to build the odd house. But across the board right now, if, if you're looking for construction finance from a Northern Irish bank, it's a real, real struggle. I'm just wondering, is there any, have you, any data in the, in the system around new builds this year or, or moving forward? Is that something you've been looking at? Uh, yeah, so I mean, well, I mean, you're right, as you say there. I mean, access to finance is one of the biggest barriers, particularly for micro builders in Northern Ireland. And clearly, um, you know, we have a housing supply shortage across the board, the UK and locally in Northern Ireland. Um, not least with the minister's announcements over the last uh, week there around sort of the, the plan to kickstart house building, particularly social house building in Northern Ireland. That's going to be a, a really important factor to, to stimulate the economic recovery. Um, but again, going back to the impact of the lockdown earlier this year, lots of construction sites had to, to close up shop for the period until they adapted. Uh, and typically in Northern Ireland over the last couple of years, we've only been building around sort of 7,000, 8,000 maybe homes a year which again you could debate what the actual optimum number that we need to build is in my view it's not enough and we're not building enough houses we should be up closer to sort of the ten thousand mark 
So we already have a housing supply shortage and the likes of these access to finance issues are, are just going to exacerbate those challenges on, on top of sort of wider infrastructure concerns and barriers to, to housing supply more generally. Whenever this happened before, off the back of the GFC, um, it took about four or five years uh, for the alternative lending market to come in and take the pressure off. And what happened? What has happened in Northern Ireland since 2016, we've literally have tens of millions, if not 100 plus, of new money available through the alternative lending market. The problem right now, which is just compounding this issue, and this will be an issue for the next 12 months, is the alternative lending market has down tools. So, you know, they, they have pulled back completely from lending money to Northern Irish builders to build new houses. So one of the things I floated uh, to the Bank of England was, I think, you know, we need we need innovation, we need ideas. And I think the infrastructure is there in terms of the British Business Bank. And I think government should look at providing some kind of development finance tool or lever for those credible liquid builders who can borrow off a government uh, bank effectively to deliver the housing and the capital infrastructure that we actually need here. I think that's something that, that Stormont should be thinking about, but um, unfortunately I don't think they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, as, as you kind of rightly articulated there, I mean, access to credit, both from a consumer and from a business perspective, is one of the biggest levers in how your economy functions. And as we're coming out of the, or we're moving in through this recovery period, that continued access to credit, whether it's through a sort of home building fund, almost kind of what you're suggesting there, sort of a government-backed home building fund, is a potential policy lever that they, they could absolutely be looking at because undoubtedly these challenges aren't going away. I mean, access to finance, improving our, our water and uh, infrastructure grid, connectivity more generally. If we're going to have more people from working, working from home, we're going to need to roll out sort of fast uh, internet speeds across the country. All these different challenges are mounting. And it's important that whilst the, the sort of the policy ambition was certainly there, um, going back again to the minister's announcement earlier last week, all of these wider parts of, of what make the housing market and the construction market tick have to be in place if it's, if it's actually going to work out in practice. Yeah, okay. So look, in general, you know, in the housing market in Northern Ireland, things are quite buoyant. If you speak to an estate agent, you know, they've never been busier and things look, you know, quite exciting, potentially even on that front. Um, my own personal view is I think, you know, we need to be a bit more considered because I think 2021 is going to be really difficult economically. It's going to be um, real, a real struggle. But in the broader picture then, so just two headlines I wanted to throw at you because I really, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. Um, in the US, uh, I picked a, a housing uh, publication this morning and the headline read, Hot Sellers Real Estate Market, Price Growth Reaching Record Levels and Falling Stock. And then on my LinkedIn page earlier this week, the Huffington Post ran with a really cracking article. So anyone interested in, in trying to figure out what's going on, they should maybe read this. Canada's house price is soaring because reality doesn't matter anymore. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, we've been told in July or August time to the Bank of England that we're facing the worst recession in 300 years. So that's, that's a fact. They actually said that. Yet and all, you know, our housing markets across the world seems to be holding up. You know, banks are lending money. I'm just trying to understand, like, what do you think? Like, what is going on globally, macro, within the banking structure and the housing markets, Jordan? Like, what, how come? Okay, so, I mean, if I was going to be starting to build an econometric equation now to, um, to determine what drives house price movements, you have a couple of very obvious things you feed in to understand the housing market. You pretty much, what's your unemployment rate? 
what's the household income levels like, what's household debt levels like, what's the sort of interest rates and by extension mortgage rates, what's the housing supply levels like, and the important bit about what is credit liquidity like, how willing are banks actually to lend that. Those factors, if you feed that into a model, that is ultimately what will determine house prices. But what we're seeing at the moment, particularly over the last six months, has been this detachment from sort of the economic reality, if you will. Uh, and now part of that is being driven by sentiment. I mean, the immediate impacts of COVID-19, people who were maybe living in their houses for longer than they wanted to, they wanted to move, or else it showed all the problems with their houses they were in, and they wanted to move on somewhere so as that they would be happier in their surroundings should they be in it for a longer period of time. Then you've got sort of the value premium that people would now place on gardens and outdoor space or having a home office, maybe time bound to make decisions after the sort of the, the fuel to the fire of the stamp duty announcement and things like that, which has really sort of accelerated these shifts in housing market behavior. But the, the article you cited there, the Huffington Post one, uh, you shared that and I actually read it as well, which was a really interesting piece, which particularly re, uh, relates to the role that central banks play in actually making housing markets function largely by controlling the flow and the supply of money that exists in the credit system. So very, very briefly, Connor here, uh, I'm going to just for the audience, I'm going to go through kind of what is this process of quantitative easing and, and what it matters and ultimately how that affects the housing market. So QE or quantitative easing or QE as it's now known was actually only developed in around 2009 by the Bank of England. It's, it's only come into the lexicon around then. It was really used as a rescue package for the 2007-8 financial crash. So if we think back then, in 2007-8, the central bank, the bank, the Bank of England, had interest rates at 5%. So one of the obvious things they could do was lower interest rates. Um, lowering interest rates would lower borrowing costs, so households and businesses could borrow cheaper. They would spend that, and that would stimulate economic growth. Now, that process has kind of worked out in, in, in practice. The other policy lever they have is, is this QE process, which is essentially just creating money almost overnight on an electronic system. It's not printing more bills or more money to, to be in circulation. It's just an electronic lever. And they can decide this overnight, such as, you know, we're going to create 150 billion pounds worth of money or whatever it might be. And we are talking in that mag magnitude. Now, that money they use is, is to purchase assets known as government bonds. And government bonds are really just the forms of loans used to finance public borrowing. Now they buy that directly from the pri from private sector financial institutions, whether it's uh, banks or lenders or insurance companies or pension funds. And actually, I think at the minute there's something like of the two trillion pounds of UK government debt, the Bank of England own about a third of that. So they're a huge huge part of of the world debt to finance the the sort of immediate expenditure that we've seen as part of the COVID recovery response. Now, investors tend to like government bonds, particularly during economic uncertainty, it's kind of a safe haven. You're, you're, you're going to be pretty sure that the government are going to be able to refinance that uh, at the end of the term. But generally speaking, the more people buy of anything, the price of it goes up. And that's, that same function happens in the bond market. So as the price of those government bonds goes up, the rate of return relative to the price goes down, I, the yield falls in those. So it essentially means the greater the money supply and circulation, the more uh, lower interest loans are available. Now, essentially, that means that those institutions who those bonds are bought from will have more money and they will look to invest that in different products where they maybe will get a higher rate of return. So they'll invest in different asset classes. And one of the biggest benefactors of that has been particularly in the property market and, and pensions. So really, if you think about that, 
the combination of cheap loans and this sort of investment in property has put upward pressure on, on, on house prices, far more so than it would have done in the absence of QE over the last lot of years. But the benefactors of those investments are either people who own shares or who own property. So existing homeowners have got the experience rising prices far faster than wages or income levels. And really it's first time buyer markets who are the ones who are being squeezed out of the market uh, sort of as a longer term trend here based on this sort of government policy response. And at the minute in the Bank of England, because interest rates are at 0.1%, they pretty much have no room to go with uh, lowering interest rates, feeling it in the negative rate territory. So what their policy lever has been in the COVID response has been lots of QE, this sort of money supply stimulus, which is essentially just, and they'll not say this, but it's basically just the central bank financing the government to spend more over the last lot of months. Um, and for instance, back in 2009, there was about 200 billion pounds worth of QE was released after the, the great financial crash. This year alone, there's been 300 billion and the total Bank of England debt, I think is up around sort of 900 billion pounds worth now. So that, that QE stimulus has been a big factor in driving property prices and share prices in property. And the, we, we know typically the people who own those sort of property and asset classes tend to be wealthier people. So we've seen huge inequalities in housing already where homeowners are getting better or well, more well off because of rising prices or else their shares have increased at faster rates. And I mean, the FTSE stock over the last sort of decade has, has increased at very strong rates of growth. And then even linked to what we just talked on there in terms of the pandemic, linking to this income inequality point, we know the pandemic has had a disproportionately higher impact on lower earners, particularly workers in the services sector and our high contact roles. A lot of people who maybe weren't in a position to buy a house and it's only gonna have further eroded their chances of purchasing a house. Whereas other people who are maybe better or more well off have actually found that their net disposable income over the last six months has increased rapidly. I mean, they haven't been able to go on summer holidays. They haven't had gym memberships. They haven't been out for restaurants or for meals or whatever they choose to spend their money on, which has essentially meant their income levels or their, their net disposable income has increased, which they're putting towards housing. And that I think is a factor what we've started to see feeding through in our data, such as the likes of the sales of four and five bedroom properties are increasing at much faster rates uh, compared to um, sort of lower, lower value properties, if you will, because more people have money to put towards housing. And that in itself, I think, is what has been the short-term driver in house prices. Yeah. Going forward into next year, what I think, or how I think I see the market playing out, again, it's almost impossible to forecast at the minute because economic models don't work during terms of a pandemic because the policy response is so fluid and it's changing every day. Uh, and ultimately what happens here is going to depend on, on how we can control the virus. So if, if, I'll use the term in a controlled spread situation. If, if, if we have a controlled spread where we maybe have time limited lockdowns, say we continue to have a modest increase in unemployment, minor hit the real income levels, and we see lenders starting to feel a bit more confident um, about the climate, I think we'll continue to see the property market turn along similar to what we've seen. We'll, we'll also probably continue to see the Bank of England uh, up their QE stimulus, which as, as I've kind of explained, I think is only going to contribute to, to, to stronger house price growth, which could mean we're in a position next year where prices continue to grow. Um, albeit, I think, against the backdrop of lower transaction activity, just because people with low deposits will continue to be omitted from the market. However, in an uncontrolled situation where, we, we, where the virus spreads much quicker than, than ultimately we can control, we have to go back into continuous national lockdowns 
there's more structural economic damage in terms of hits to unemployment and incomes, uh, and ultimately lenders are, are still very risk averse and they don't bring these products, then that is a position where I think the, the, the housing market and those sort of basic fundamentals that I talked about of what drives house price movements will become much more into play. And, and in that situation, I think we'll start to see price falls next year of maybe around sort of 5%, maybe a bit greater. Um, and again, much lower transaction activity. So there's a lot of factors at play here. Connor, conscious of talk for a wee bit there, and hopefully that helps give a flavor of what's going on. Um, but I certainly think that sort of central bank response in terms of the money supply stimulus has been a huge factor over the last decade, not least the last decade for, for property prices. Yeah, I think it's an excellent summary. I think in a, in, in a real short summary, they've basically filled the financial system with, with money through quantitative easing. I remember when I was young, I used to ask my mum all the time, every couple of months for a new pair of football boots. And she used to keep saying, well, do you think I have some kind of magic money tree in the garden? And it always stuck with me. And throughout the course of this project with the podcast of talking to you and Stephen Kinsler and Eric uh, Lonergan last week and others, um, there is actually a magic money tree. It's called the Central Bank, which is really an arm of government. And it's just fascinating that so little people, so few people actually understand how all of this works. But I think it's really important and incumbent upon people to have a bit of a knowledge of, of how the money system works because it, it can really help you in your own career, in your own life, and your own family, actually, in terms of understanding the housing market, the mortgage market, the availability of money. I think it's, I think it's really, really valuable. Uh, absolutely, Connor. I mean, the, the whole process of economics and, and financial economics, which is kind of what we're talking about there, they've kind of been disaggregated for so long. And actually, if we go back to 2008 and the great financial crash, it was very much treated as separate entities, and economists didn't fix them into their models of how the financial system was at play here. And, we know how that worked out. So certainly over the last sort of eight, nine, 10 years, there's been lots of academic theory and trying to understand the integral role that the financial system plays and how economies function because as, as we kind of talked through very briefly there, they're intrinsically linked uh, and ultimately the, the role the credit system plays is gonna have a huge role in how your economies function and ultimately how, you, how your society is gonna be living and what your unemployment rate and your income levels and all that stems from that is going to be. So, it does absolutely matter to people, but it's just, it's not very well understood. And I must actually give credit to you. I mean, the guests you've had on the last couple of weeks have been absolutely fantastic at explaining that because it's an area I haven't, I, I was taught a bit about it back in when I was doing my economics degree um, a, good, a good long time ago. Uh, and you actually don't learn about it much in practice whenever you're, you're working. So it kind of does bring it to the fore of just how important this actually is and understanding how the government policy is formulated and ultimately what levers they do have at their disposal to inject during times of crisis, not least the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I would agree with that. I think the, uh, the overriding uh, summary from the Bank of England earlier this week was uh, things are very, very uncertain. And that, that stands with what you've just said in terms of the, the to, it's, it's quite dangerous to try and forecast the next three, six, 12 months. We just, we just really don't know. Um, I think we are unfortunately in a period of rolling lockdowns. I think it was good news. Uh, Although I think it's quite premature to be, you know, uh, being overly optimistic on the vaccine. I think I think we need more information around all of that. But it looks as if the vaccine solution is definitely on the right trajectory, which which the world give a, a sigh of relief, I think, in the last couple of days. But look, we'll just have to see how things go. But it is it is positive that you know the housing market there's so many people interested in property and real estate and housing particularly in this part of the world jordan and as things stand today you know things are still quite uh, positive in that regard 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the news coming out about the vaccine there has been the little glimmer of light that we've all kind of been hoping for. Uh, all we can do is hope and pray that this this does come to fruition. And certainly in the time frame that it seems to be implied, whether it's rolled out to those most at risk or healthcare workers by the end of the year, with the view to maybe rolling it out sort of by springtime or so across your population. I mean, that would kind of be the good news story we, we would all really like to go into next year with and give us all hope for, for a very different 2021 than, than this year's been. Because it's just been full of negativity and really difficult and financial hardship for so many in society. So I think it would be really welcome and, and a really hopeful way to, to end the year. Excellent. Again, Jordan, thank you very much. I will catch up with you again soon. Thank you. Per perfect. Thanks again, Connor. All the best. To you. Take care. That brings us to a close of another action-packed show. Great conversation with Jordan Buchanan. I hope if you're like me, you're a hell of a lot wiser now. What is going on in the housing market? We covered a lot of ground there. It's just fascinating, you know, for me, looking at the dynamics and look at what's going on right now in the world. I think it's really, really important. I think it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to try and grasp at least a little bit of what's going on because it really does impact us. Hopefully some of the subject matter that I'm covering in this particular podcast is helping you. From a health perspective, I hope you're looking after yourself. I try and encourage, every time I do the podcast, I try and encourage you to eat well, to sleep more, to supplement. Remember, I talk about this a lot in the podcast. It's really important in the winter months that you supplement with vitamin D. Vitamin D, some people refer to it as the wonder drug. Well, I take, personally, I take 8,000 IU every single day. I know that's more than the recommended dose, but most adults, in my view, should take three to 4,000 IU in the winter months. What I would say to you is, if you're gonna take vitamin D, do your own research, do your own homework. But it's so, so important, particularly now that we have this pandemic, you know, everybody's concerned about their health. We're all afraid. I think it's really important that you try and get out of that zone of negativity and really, really focus and put the work in, do the work to improve your health, to build your immune system. You know, I'm gonna keep talking like this on the podcast because it's my passion, health is my passion, but my other passion is business. And hopefully in this show, in this conversation that I have with Jordan, I hope you got a lot of value from it. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, I've got a favor to ask. I haven't asked any favors, if you listen to this show, I now have over 6,000 downloads on Money and Plants. Quite incredible what has happened and how this project is going. But I'm asking you, if you're on Apple or Google or wherever it is you listen to me on Spotify, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, that would really help me get the message across. If you really enjoy the show, let me know. If you don't enjoy the show, just let on you do and say it's great. And one last favour, if you enjoy this conversation, please share it with one other person. You can contact me at my email address. It's connor at connordevine.com. If there is anything on your mind, if there's anything you think I should be discussing on the podcast, if there are any guests you think would make a fascinating, really interesting guest, let me know. That's it for the podcast. That's it for episode number 19. Look after yourself and look after each other.